Welcome to the Redemption Tempe podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. My name is Joshua Butler. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption. Uh, I'm joined by Ricardo Stewart, who's the lead pastor here. And we have a special guest on today, Mark Sayers. Uh, Mark is one of my favorite people out there. He's the senior leader of a church called Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and I found him to be one of the most insightful kind of cultural commentators today. Uh, just going often, we find ourselves caught in these currents of things that are happening in our cultural moment. Uh, and Mark has this amazing ability to zoom out and see the bigger kind of oceanic tides and currents and even tectonic shifts and continental drifts. I'm probably mixing like 10 metaphors there, but uh, able to see the big picture and kind of how history and movements have shaped where we are today. And also so insightful, I believe, on where God may be calling us forward in this moment. Uh, he's the author of numerous books, Disappearing Church, one of my favorites. We'll be talking a bit about that one today, uh, as well as his newer book, Strange Days, is probably one of my favorite books of last year, um, looking at culture today and how religious, uh, sec quote unquote, secular culture can actually be. Facing Leviathan, a great book on leadership, uh, The Road Trip That Changed the World, all these just excellent books, highly recommend. Uh, but Mark, so grateful to have you here with us today. It's an absolute pleasure to be joining you. Awesome. Well, the context for this uh, conversation today is we're entering a series now called Exiles, Faithful Presence in Our Cultural Moment, and just recognizing that once upon a time in America, uh, maybe that being a Christian, identifying as a Christian could just kind of earn you some instant street cred, right? Like there was a sense that uh, whether you liked Christianity, identified it as not, it, it was maybe commonly culturally assumed to be right or good, or possibly true, whatever. And today there's a sense where identifying as a Christian can kind of get you the stink eye, you know? And there can be a, a sense for many of us today following Jesus going, how do we live faithfully at a time where uh, our culture not only doesn't assume that Christianity is necessarily po quite possibly true or a good thing, but in many respects can even be seen as a bad thing or a negative thing or a dangerous thing. And often uh, we as churches get caught up in maybe trying to be relevant or trying to impress or show that we uh, still matter in this moment. Uh, and we're going to talk uh, today about some of the dangerous places that can go. And likewise, how does Jesus call us to be faithful uh, in our cultural moment? So with that said, Ricardo, maybe I'll pass it to you. Thanks for having me, Josh. And thank you, Mark, for being here with us or uh, being in Australia while being with us here in America. Um, so I have a question for you. Um, but before I get in, one, I just want to let you know that I'm really thankful for your your ministry, the way God's wired you, the way that you talk, the way that you speak, the way that you write. It's been extremely helpful for me to read your books and listen to other podcasts that you were that you were on. And um, just your insight into culture as a follower of Jesus has been really helpful for me. In fact, the genesis of us entering into this series, it came as a result of me listening to a podcast with you and John Mark Comer 
um, a pastor in Portland, uh, this cultural moment, which I, I recommend for people to listen to. And as I was listening to the two of you um, talk on that podcast, it really got me thinking like this resonates not just in Portland, not just in Melbourne, but this resonates here in Tempe, Arizona, and probably just all of America. Um, and so it was just really, really, really helpful. And I think that the Lord has given you um, a unique ability to speak, and then you have a unique gift. And, um, and there's this also, you have this ability to have the discernment, but also the prophetic edge to be able to speak and give those of us who are following Jesus a way forward. And, um, and I just want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate uh, it. And so the thing I want to ask, um, and I'm just going to jump into it, uh, is, is you have been talking about pre-Christian and post-Christian culture. So pre-Christian culture, post-Christian culture and how we are to interact with it. So before we even talk about that, or there any of the questions, would you go ahead and briefly describe what you mean by pre-Christian and post-Christian culture? Yeah, so, uh, you know, when you look at how Christianity has expanded out from Jerusalem um, and the upper room of the disciples and the Holy Spirit falling on them, and then it going out into the world, you have these different encounters. So there were times when the church was encountering uh, people who knew nothing of Jesus, uh, knew nothing of even the Jewish uh, religion. Um, so in a sense, they were encountering pre-Christian cultures. Um, but then there are, becomes other times where what you have is the church goes into a culture, perhaps some of that culture becomes Christian, but then in a sense it reverts. Um, and this has happened all throughout uh, Christian history. So even in the you know relatively ancient world or late antiquity, uh, there was an attempt by one of the um, uh, emperors to roll back Christianity. Um, you see in the Middle Ages, or rather in the Dark Ages, uh, some of Europe, which had been evangelized, then actually goes back to paganism. And so there's this process where you have cultures that become post-Christian. So I would describe much of the West now as post-Christian, but there's a carefulness we need to t have about um, how we use that term. So it's sort of been described in some times as, oh, we're post-Christian, we're beyond it. People have no idea about Christianity anymore. Um, and I remember hearing, you know, about 10 years ago, someone saying how Sweden had hit this post-Christian moment and that basically you had young people on school excursions and field trips going to museums and having no idea what the biblical imagery was in paintings. But the reality is Sweden and the rest of the West all have a post-Christianity, which is still deeply shaped by Christianity. So my definition of post-Christianity and the project of the West or much of the West is to have the fruit of the kingdom of God, but minus the king. So it sees itself as building on some of the Christian things, but then shaping it and changing it in a new direction. Yeah, so that's, that's helpful. And that leads me to my next question. You made a couple statements that I really resonated with. So the first one it has to do with our culture and our context. And what we're seeing is that people, you said, they want the kingdom without the king. Mm. Yes. So there is this element which has always been true of, of humans, which is that we see from the fall in the garden that humans and Adam and Eve, in a sense, have this mandate where God is, is commanding them and offering them this role as stewards of creation to go out into the world, um, spreading his presence to the end of the world through cultivating the world, teaching their children. And so humans have this mandate given by God is created in his image to go into the world, transforming it and bringing the presence of God into the world. 
And so the serpent enters into the garden and the serpent's question really, you know, eat of this, you know, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, so that you may become like gods. So in a sense, they want to fill, instead of the whole of the world with God's presence, they want to become like gods themselves. So one way to look at this is that the devil offers them an alternate way of achieving that project of filling a reality with divine presence. But instead of God, the one true God's divine presence, they want to then become gods and they want to take off on this project in a mutated form that occurs without the presence. It occurs within their own strength. So we see that reoccurring throughout human history, but particularly in the West and since the movement we would call the Enlightenment, and you could even trace some of this back to the Renaissance, uh, that uh, in the 1700s, this vision comes about of what if we could move beyond Christianity and actually create a lot of the cultural goals of Christianity, but without Christian belief and content. So that's where there's this desire to take a lot of the fruit of Christianity, such as peace, equality, um, you know, progress really is, is in a sense a Christian um, concept of, that we're moving towards an end point. And this project comes about of let's, let's head in that direction, but do it without the form of Christianity, which makes us bow down before a king and lay down our, our personal power and, and authority before the one true king. Could you talk for a minute, like, so themes like that, fruit of the kingdom, justice, peace, equality, kind of this progressive uh, march of history and all, uh, when it gets uprooted from the king, I'd be interested in your thoughts on some of the ways that even changes the definitions of the terms themselves. Is there a way that the terms take on different meaning over time? Yeah. So in a sense, how I see it is that throughout history, there are these moments when humanity moves into these sort of redemption moments or even renewal moments. And so one of the things that I think that the enemy wants to do is he wants to keep Christians quiet and he wants to stop change happening and he wants calcified injustices to stay in place. So then there comes different times where actually it's like the people cry out and they want injustice to end. And so this renewal energy begins. And often it begins with, I think, very biblical, godly questions. Why is there injustice in the world? Why are these people enslaved? Why can the poor not be fed? And then as soon as that energy kicks off, which has the potential, it's the desire of eternity in human hearts and our, and our heart for the kingdom, is it's like once the enemy realizes that his job of keeping people frozen is, is no longer working, what he then wants to do, like a judo master, is then take the energy of that redemptive moment or that renewal moment or that revolutionary moment and he wants to throw it into excess so what you see is these terms like justice equality all have this you know biblical foundations but then they start to lose a biblical mooring and can mean a multiplicity of different things so you know the question that was risen in in 19th century russia of why are there so many people who are poor when there's this rich class in Moscow and the big cities? That gets then taken to this extreme and you end up having these enemies created like the Kulaks who are these richer peasants and all of a sudden you're having those people killed and massacred and you run into these elements where it goes into this extreme. So it becomes this incredible art of discernment of how do we bring all of our human reality, including our moments when cultural change needs to happen, they still need to come under the Lordship of Christ. Yeah, again, that's insightful.
I would love for you to speak into uh, as someone who is as someone who's not living in the United States but familiar with our culture. Um, so you can boldly speak as someone who doesn't pastor Redemption 10B. Um, you could say the true things that you want to say without um, any any buffer. Um, is that we have this tension in our context in our community where people politically come from the right or people co- politically come from the left, and and sometimes we 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 just take everything on the right or we take everything on the left and there's no critique or affirmation. What, as someone outside of our country, what critiques and affirmations would you have for the follower of Jesus to be uniquely faithful to Jesus in our specific cultural moment? Yes. As someone who has been raised around Americans, who is in America a lot and really has studied America and Australia is weird where this culture, which, comes out of Britain, in a sense, reject, you know, my, my relatives were in Australia because they were put on boats and sent to the other side of the world because Britain was trying to deal with this huge class issue it had. And we have this weird relationship with Britain. So then we have this thing where we look to America, but we're not fully American. Like some, we should be in the Atlantic. We're sort of, you know, I go to America and I feel slightly British and I go to Britain. I feel like I look at things like an American sometimes. um, So I I feel like that it's been given an interesting viewpoint to look at America. So that's just a bit of background of, of speaking to this. The first thing I would say to anyone in that situation is the worst way to look at reality is through the paradigm of American domestic politics. American domestic <laughs> politics is a particular political situation which grows through a history which doesn't explain the whole of reality. And both sides, left and right of American politics, come out of one stream of enlightenment thought. They're more alike than a lot of people realize in some ways with some of their ground assumptions. And they both have Christian elements. Um, there is a sense in progressivism of asking questions around justice around what does equality and fairness look like of wrestling seriously with the difficult parts of american history that still are in play and need to be spoken into the other side the conservative side of american politics also asks some very good questions in how do you move forward but in a way that doesn't fall into the mistakes that were made in the 20th century of totalitarianism of just blowing everything up because of some injustices? How do you preserve elements which are needed for human flourishing, such as cultural institutions, such as the family? They're also biblical questions. But then both have only partial answers. And in the sense, both then fall into uh, forms of extreme. The left can then fall into the extreme of blowing everything up and seeing that mixing up certain things which need to be looked at and explored and injustices, but then falling almost into a fundamentalism where these big block categories of in and out and who is, is, is saying the right thing and who's saying the wrong thing, that can cloud things. On the right, it can move into this also form of mutant capitalism in which the market will solve everything and and I find it really interesting that if you look at the practical outcomings of both the visions of the left and right, both end up pushing people into this increasingly atomized individualism. The form of capitalism that we have at the moment of hyper-mutant capitalism means that people increasingly are finding themselves cut off from any responsibility, pushing more and more into their pleasures and finding themselves isolated. 
the form of mutation that leftism has moved into where all cultural traditions and structures are seen as oppressive and must be deconstructed also is creating an entire generation of people who find themselves isolated and adrift. So there's more going on between the two. And in a sense, I would encourage people in that context to step out of that and say, what is a biblical vision of what a flourishing culture looks like? Can I, yeah. What would you say? So that's sort of our context. I think it's really insightful in the context we're in. And you talk about the difference between as churches, as followers of Jesus, pursuing relevance versus resilience and how often, I guess, practically we can feel like, ah, we're not, we, we're losing the popularity contest right now, right? Like we used to have a prime seat at the lunch table and now a lot of people don't want to sit with us. And there can be this pressure that a lot of churches have felt maybe over the decades. So like we, we got to become relevant again. We got to go out and prove that we matter or mean, we're meaningful to, to our, our culture at this time. Can you talk about some of the dangers um, implicit in that history and maybe how the gospel calls us to a different way? Well, one of the real myths that, that, you know, emerges, I think, um, within American culture is the idea of public relations. And the idea of public relations is that you can manage your image in a public way that will then win people over. Um, And there's two problems with that. Number one is, what is the public? If I walk out on my street here and interview 10 people walking by, they're all going to have completely different viewpoints. It's not like the public is like an individual, but you almost talk about it as if it's this individual who has this one particular way of looking at the world and like all of a sudden public opinion now says 75% of people believe this. We almost think, oh, that means that this individual of the public has changed their mind. So it's a myth that we can change the public's mind. The public is all these different people, individuals. Um, So we started to fall, I think, for the myth that comes out of politics and marketing that you can then convince the public and change their mind. Um, the public is an unpredictable beast. And, you know, we have a whole bunch of thought, you know, from Kierkegaard onwards who said that we've got to abandon this idea of trying to convince the public. The second idea is that we could convince the public to follow Jesus by just using those tools of public relations, by putting ourselves as an attractive, viable option in the way that a company selling tires might make themselves a viable uh, option. And so there was this stage where I think we began to fall for this, particularly, I don't know, maybe from the late 90s, early 2000s, where it seemed like this possibility was there for the church in the West and particularly in America, that if we just become relevant enough and speak the language of the culture, then we can gain this kind of cultural acceptance. And there was this stage where all of a sudden you heard all these stories about that Christian who's in that cool band or that Christian who's in Hollywood or that Christian who's in that sort of NGO and they're gaining acceptance because they look cool and they use the right terms and they can sort of interact with the culture. Um, But very quickly that got the carpet pulled out from under its feet because it's never about wearing the right clothes or saying the right words, that there is a fundamental reality where the Christian is called to serve the culture by disobeying some of its rules. <laughs> All right, Mark. So you've, you've done a great job at really giving us uh, some windows to look in, in terms of looking through on the right and the left. I, I couldn't have said it better. Um, these lens help us talk and walk and really be faithful to our, our savior and as Christians in our context. But I, I wanted to press into a little bit more on something that I've heard you talked about before. And that is the idea that we, you know, we have missionaries and we have these missionaries and we send them to places. And what happens is we, we, we try to share the gospel, but in doing so, we also colonize them. 
And so we just don't give them the reality of who Christ is, but we give them our culture and so forth. And so they become colonized. And then a lot of the missional movement in the Western culture, we've said, hey, we're going to go to where people are at. We're going to bring the gospel to where men and women and children are at, and we're not going to colonize them. So we started doing Bible studies and, and bars and restaurants and neighborhoods and, and, and sports leagues and just really got into the culture and sharing the hope of the gospel. But you made this statement that we failed to understand how shaping these environments and these cultures were. And so while trying not to colonize them, we and ourselves as followers of Christ we became colonized. And, and that statement was huge for me. And so that, I would love for you, I guess I just want to say, I would love for you to go ahead and speak about that. Yeah, I, I think there was a great underestimating of the power of our culture to form us. Um, one of the most amazing things that's happened in the last few years is that throughout history, there's been regimes and leaders who have wanted to control their populations. None have ever had the success that, advertising Silicon Valley have had in the last few years in shaping us at a neurological level, at a habits level, uh, the power that they have to track our information, to create algorithms. It's just an incredible formation machine. So there's an element that when we went into missional situations, taking the framework, which I believe in, I believe in doing missiology and missions really well and doing that in a way so we avoid colonizing other cultures as we bring the gospel. But there was a naivety that we didn't realize that we were getting colonized. And so when we sent people into situations and spaces within the West uh, to share the gospel, but when they weren't formed, A, and then B, not realizing how much the culture forms them, I think that has caused tremendous damage for lots of people. And there's a sense where what we had really was far more people formed by the culture than actually us shaping people within the culture for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again. I resonate with that a lot. And one of the things that I continue to learn from you and would love for you to speak as well is, um, so we critique and we see these issues as we um, are walking through the series of exiles and looking at the story of Daniel and his friends and how faithful they were in the kingdom of Babylon. What sort of ways as we as Christians living in America, in the Southwest, in Arizona, in Tempe, what sort of ways toward renewal and revival would you point us to? And let's start with the latter. What ways do you see, um, like in history and throughout history, revival within God's people? Yes. Well, there's this, there's this dynamic that throughout history, we almost have bought into this, I would call it a crude street level version of secularism. People outside of the church believe it and people inside of the church have imbibed this. That's this idea that, I don't know, sometime in the 1200s, everyone in the West was a Christian. And then if there's a graph, all that's happened is slowly that's dropped off as we've progressed and learned more. That's just a completely unhelpful view and an unrealistic view of actually what the churches look like in the West. A better graph, if we were to draw another crude graph, would be that there's been times where the church has grown and then it's dropped off, times where it's grown and dropped off. So it's actually a graph that goes up and down. And so, you know, you think of the great renewal, revival, awakenings of the 18th century. Um, just to pick one story in that. So you have Charles Simeon, who's, uh, uh, you know, in England at that time. And, and literally, you read his description of life at that time. I think he was at Cambridge. And literally, the theology professors are doing their lectures drunk. 
Uh, Cambridge is literally, you know, we talk about um, student protests on campuses at the moment. That has nothing. You're talking hundreds of people killed on these elite British colleges like Oxford and Cambridge. They had to have these doors to lock themselves in at night because people would break in and kill you. The state of the church in England was at such a terrible state. I think it was one of the Easter services at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I mean, a mammoth building uh, built you know, after the Great Fire of London by Christopher Wren. You have, I think it was six people turn up for Easter service. Um, Australia is birthed at that time. Australia is described in the 18th century as a post-Christian culture in the 18th century. And so you have this incredible low point. Simeon is trying to write his sermons and he actually can't write them because outside his window, people are having sex in public. So you read all this stuff, you've got political upheaval in Britain, you've got globalization happening as Britain and different Western powers begin to you know, do trade all across the world. You've got what people see as a cultural um, falling apart of family. Sexuality seems to be you know, all over the shop, mass addiction to gin and substance. And then all of a sudden at that absolutely dark point, God starts to do something. It happens in the Wesley brothers. It happens with Jonathan Edwards. There's this thing where across the world at this dark point, all of a sudden the dawn begins to break. And so that's a pattern that's repeated throughout history. And we need to see that different model of secularism to realize that, hang on, this cultural panic that many people are feeling within the church over the last few years of like, wow, we're losing our position. What's so interesting about this moment is it's not like the progressives are all of a sudden saying, wow, we feel empowered at the moment. No, progressives are worrying that there's around the world a return to the right and a rise of authoritarian strong men and strong women leaders. Do conservatives feel good at the moment? No, they don't. They feel like there's a wave of progressivism around the world. Muslims feel embattled. Hindus feel embattled. Atheists feel embattled. Everyone at the moment is freaking out because there is mass tectonic shifts happening around the world. And there's a sense where a lot of people in the West inside the church are freaking out, but people outside the West are freaking out because the secular progressive myth that we're told to explain our world is also breaking down. So when I see that sort of thing happening, globalization, massive tectonic shifts, things getting to this real cultural point of panic, when you look at history, that's the exact kind of moments that God uses to start something new. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Personally, that's just really helpful for me. Um, yeah, Mark, you're, I appreciate it. You're, you're a gift to us. And uh, just just for you to be able to do this interview with us and this podcast and just sitting here and being able to receive the thoughts that you have, um, they're going to be good for me personally, and they're going to be good for our people. Um, I do need to ask one more question before I kick it back to Josh. And that is um, as helpful as you spoke into revival historically, and also what that can mean for us. Could you also speak to the other word um, renewal? Like what does renewal look like individually and as a community? Um, give us some insight that you that you have as you've studied it and as you've experienced it and have you seen it. Yes. Renewal and revival are intimately linked. And essentially, one is the French version. Renew is the French. If you go back to the root of the word, you know, you've got one which is a Latin and one which is French. They mean the same thing, which is to bring something back to life or to restart something after it's been stopped for a period. So I believe that literally Adam and Eve's role of stewards sending God's presence to the end of the world is paused when the fall happens. The purposes of God is to restart that project, 
despite their rebellion through an act of grace to again invite them into their true purpose of then being renewed, made new, restarting that mission into the world. So renewal, it's really key to understand this, that corporate renewal, cultural renewal, church renewal begins with personal renewal. If anyone is listening to this and they're looking at the state of the world and there's a sense where their heart is grieving, that despair needs to be reframed as fuel for contention. And contention is a word that I'm repeating ad nauseum at the moment. There is a point where we bought this myth that we could be Western Christians and be hip and cool and fit into the world and not feel a sense of discomfort. There is a sense of discomfort that is growing and a sense of concern about where things are going. And we need to reframe that and go, actually, we need to get on our knees and beg God to move. Hmm. We need to, to actually at this time go, we're in the West. There's never been before, with all the West problems, there's never been before a culture as comfortable and prosperous as this one, despite all our cultural panic at the moment, when you compare the whole sweep of history. At this moment, we've lived through some of the most tumultuous things. In the last 15 years, we've lived through the Rohingya genocide. We've lived through almost the eradication of Christianity in the Middle East. We've lived through a world war between Shia and Sunni. We lived in the 90s through the Great War of Africa, where some estimates have 3 million people died. We don't even know about this stuff. We're getting stuck into Twitter arguments about the content of what this person said on that late night show or was this tweet offensive. There's a point where renewal and revival happens when we actually have to get on our knees and cry out for mercy that God is actually going to look at us and treat us with grace because around the world, there are Christians in situations where they are experiencing incredible persecution. And we're brothers and sisters with them. So there's this sense where we need to switch on to reality and the non-reality forming machine of fantasy and delusion that can be the West. We actually have to wake up from that and see things as they spiritually are. And there's people who get that. There's people out there. And it doesn't mean, it's not always the most talented people. It's not always the most gifted people. It's not always the people in the positions of power. But there's ordinary people out there who feel this sense of disconnect, look at Scripture and go, hang on, something's wrong here. And I think what God wants to do at this moment in the West is say to those people, start praying, start contending, get on your knees. I'm, I'm preaching here. But like a good sermon, I'll add a little story. In, in, in the 1940s, in the north, far north of Britain, in the Hebrides Islands, Two women in their 80s one night wondered why, as secularism started to grow in Britain, why there were no more teenagers in their church. One was completely disabled with arthritis. The other was blind. And basically they started praying in front of their fire three times a week, I think it was, between 10 and 3 a.m. They invited the local minister into this. They said there's a barn across the way and basically – a few people from that community started to just pray and contend and fight after night after night and cry out for God's mercy and cry on their knees. A revival broke out in the Hebrides to the point where 75% of the population of that part of Scotland came to faith. The stories are incredible. I won't go into them now, but stories of people 
being drawn out of their farmhouses towards the church and being converted before they even enter into the building. Now, these stories seem amazing to us, but a message to anyone out there, America, you're not going to think your way out of this one. American church, you're not going to think your way out of this one. We're actually going to pray our way out of this one, and we need God's sovereignty to come in and do something now. And because this is the moment we realize our powerlessness and we turn to the power of Christ. Amen. Amen. So good. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Preach. Yes. Keep preaching. Alas, I love it. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for being here with us. I know two big takeaways for me. Uh, one is that this moment is not new. You know, I mean, it's unique yes. in that it's this is our moment, but it can feel like, oh, this is uncharted territory. No one's ever been here before. And I, I'm grateful for your ability to zoom out and see like, no, this is a part of a long tradition of a God who loves to move at the moments that can feel the bleakest, you know? Mm. And that as well as just the reality that Jesus's call to us is not success, but faithfulness and how there's actually an invitation in this morning to enter into a greater dependence that what's going to transform is not our gimmicks or our figuring it out intellectually or whatever else. Uh, there's a dependence on the power of God's spirit, his power and presence to move and putting us in a position in this moment to rely ever more on pressing faithfully in, into life with him. Mm. And those are the kind of sparks he loves to, his spirit loves to blow on and just kind of fan into flame of movement. So yes. thanks, Mark. Pleasure. Uh, I want to encourage you. <laughs> I, I want to encourage you as you wrap up, uh, man, check out Mark's, uh, the podcast mentioned earlier, this cultural moment that Mark and John Mark Comer do uh, is phenomenal, a great resource to kind of dive deeper into this. Um, also, his books, highly recommend Disappearing Church is a great one uh, on this topic, but all of his books are phenomenal. Mark, you've got another book you're working on, right? Is that something that... Uh, do you know when that's coming out or what the Yes. Topic? So that'll be mid-year next year, uh, 20, what's it now? It's 2018, so 2019. Uh, <laughs> look out for it in the middle of the year. Um, and it's all about renewal and what if this secular moment in which we're freaking out is actually the exact moment God wants to do something new. Sweet. Well, thank you, listeners. We'll be back next week. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you want to hear, uh, get updates on the continual episodes each week. Uh, thank you for listening. This is Redemption Tempe, where all of life is all for Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>